Hello and welcome to the first episode of a new series on Braincast. In this new series, we aim to talk to people with hidden disabilities, discussing their experiences within the healthcare system and the education system, and what they think is needed from society to support them. My name is Emily. My name is Sood. And on our first episode, I'm really pleased to have Alex join us to discuss hereditary neuropathy with liability to pressure palsies. So first of thank you for joining us, Alex. Uh, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. Very excited to talk about this. Thank you. And how's your Christmas going so far? Uh, lots of assignments, lots of essay writing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, same for me. I think all of us, all of us uni students are the same right now. Um, but just to get started, do you think you could tell us a bit about what MHNPP is? So it's a very rare genetic nerve condition. And basically, it is a deletion mutation um, that uh, there's a gene called the uh, PNP22 gene. And you're supposed to have two of them. I only have one. Um, and so one of the proteins that makes the protective covering on my nerves, I don't really have enough of it. And so my nerves get damaged very, very easily. And for me, the main symptoms that I have is um, like chronic pain, um, numbness and pins and needles, uh, muscle weakness, and sometimes even temporary paralysis. Uh, and there are lots of other symptoms that I also have that may or may not be to do with it. But because it's such a rare condition, no one researches it ever. Yeah. So you mentioned the um, PMP22 gene. So yeah. if it's genetic, does that mean the diagnostic procedure was like genetic testing or were there other ways to diagnose it? So the only way to confirm the diagnosis is through genetic testing because there are a number of other conditions that have similar symptoms. Um, the first, for me, the first stage of actually exploring HMPP was to have an EMG. Um, so sitting there being electrocuted, when electric shocked in a controlled way for a bit, not the most comfortable of things. Yeah. And um, how old were you when you first like when you had this EMG and you first started noticing the symptoms that made you go? Well, I first started experiencing symptoms around 11 or 12. Um, and for a bit, no one really knew. They were just like, wow. Your arms feel like they're on fire. We don't know what's wrong with you. Um, and then I think when I actually had the EMG, I would have probably been 13, but I didn't get diagnosed until I think a year later or something. It, so it was for people with rare chronic conditions, it was quite quick, but in many ways at the time it felt quite slow. Yeah. And considering it was quick but slow do you think how did you cope with the symptoms at first without knowing what it was and I'm assuming not having many treatment options at that point um yeah it was I think so the the condition is a weird one because no one can really decide if it's progressive or episodic but I know that for me there's definitely a kind of per permanent set of symptoms and then sometimes some of them flare up 
And so um, there were times when it was really, really scary. And I remember the kind of the first medical intervention that I had um, was when my parents took me to A&E because I was having really, really extreme burning sensations um, through my ulnar nerves. And we were like, what the, what is happening here? Um, so yeah, not really knowing what was wrong with me, but having quite scary symptoms, it was definitely difficult. Yeah, I mean, you, you said you were what, like 11 to 13. So that's quite a like, you're, you're finding yourself and everything. So how was it dealing with that aspect of it at the same time as trying to find a diagnosis? Um, yeah, I think for me, a lot more of the um, emotional side, uh, the most difficulties came from the fact that it was limiting what I was able to do. So at the time I was a competitive swimmer and basically what mainly flares up the problem is any form of pressure on the nerves. And swimming puts a lot of pressure on the nerves in your arms. Um, and so I went from doing quite well. I was regularly improving and getting like really good swimming times to suddenly not being able to swim without being in huge amounts of pain. So I think during the diagnosis process, the difficult thing for me was the things that I was being stopped from doing. Yeah. So was that, um, so obviously with um, HNPP, there's the neuropathy and then the palsy. So was at the beginning, did you have the pain and the tingling and the sensations as well as the paralysis or was it one and then the other? Um, I think, so the paralysis, it's a, it's all a, a bit, um, it's a bit of a weird condition, I think, because, so for me, the pain is just kind of, a fact of life that's always there um, and then it tends to um, sometimes the, the tingling will start and then some numbness will happen and then paralysis then happens after that. Um, for me I'm quite lucky in that the paralysis is something that's quite rare for me um, but I know of people who have had their arms, both arms paralyzed for like a year. So in that respect, I've been quite lucky with the condition. So would you say that, um, because there's um, a famous YouTuber called, I think Jessica kelgren Fozard, yeah. Um, yeah. who I love watching myself anyway, but would you say that with the disability, there's like, it's very, very different from person to person and the mm. symptoms change and can change throughout your lifetime? Yeah, so it's current, the current estimate of um, how many people have this condition is about one, one to five people in every 100,000. Oh, wow. However, they think it's actually a lot higher than that because they think a lot of people um, have such minor symptoms that they never even notice that they have a problem. Um, and like if I compare my experiences with the condition to my mum's experiences, completely different. My mum is more or less fine. Um, but for me, I've had a lot more struggles with it. And then the YouTuber you mentioned, Jessica Calgren-Fozard, for example, 
both of her arms were paralyzed for a year when she was a teenager. So it's so wildly different. Yeah. So um, obviously it, uh, Jessica had it, uh, the like paralysis episode for a year. So how long for you do these paralysis episodes last for? And are there like any triggers or is it just completely random? For me, if I have ended up with some sort of paralysis, it's usually because I fell asleep on an arm or something like that. That's usually how it happens. Um, and I'd say the difference between when it happens to me and when able-bodied people wake up with like a dead arm or something is it happens a lot quicker. Um, but f so compared to other people with the condition, within a couple of hours, I'm usually back to being able to use whatever's been paralyzed. Um, but I can, there's still some like residual weakness and um, more intense levels of pain. Yeah. So um, I know you're a dancer. Um, so have you found that dancing is good or bad or doesn't help or makes it worse? Have you found that pain gets worse or anything like that? I think it really depends on the whole. Um, dancing has been like a lifeline to me because when I'm dancing it's much easier to just forget that I'm in pain so it's been something that's really helped me however because of the styles of dance that I've done there are times when everyone will be doing something and I can't do it for example um, I get the most symptoms in my arms particularly in my wrists so I can't do floor work because it just puts too much pressure on my hands. Um, so there are times when I do notice that like, I have to stand at the back of the class while everyone's doing something, but on the whole, it's been an amazing thing for me. Yeah, yeah. So um, obviously that's like something to keep you like going and like mental health wise maybe is making you feel a lot better. Are there any other things that either physically help you like assistance or mentally keep you like happy and positive about things um so with this condition it's at present completely untreatable um and there are very few record like um kind of well-known ways of managing it my experience from like things like online forums is that most people have to Kind of be a bit creative and find their own ways of uh, managing it so in terms of um like physical stuff there are loads of different treatments i've tried to manage things like the pain and on the whole they just haven't worked for me um there are various forms of like assistive equipment that i've tried using in the past and with that i found they don't really tend to help me and also they just draw so much attention and so many questions and people ask the questions and are never prepared for the answers. Um, and then it just turns a lot of social interaction very awkward, very quick. So I found that for me, the ways that I need to manage my condition are all about like mental stuff. So it's things like dancing, um, 
something I used to do quite a lot if I was having quite a bad flare up is I would just lie completely flat on my bed, lights um, switched off, headphones on, really loud music and just kind of try and dissociate from my body basically. And does does that help? Do you think that's it actually does something or do you think it's like placebo just making you feel feel better? I think um, it's about distracting yourself from the pain and shutting yourself off from the uncomfortable sensations. So I think it does help because, yeah, it's um, one thing that I've learned, the massive thing that I've learned over the past few years is that pain is, there is a huge component of pain that's completely psychological. That's not to say it's not physical because I can confirm it is. But um, for me, I've noticed that if uh, if um, my mood is lower, then I'm more likely to be experiencing pain. If I'm thinking about my nerve condition, I'm more likely to experience the pain. Um, so yeah, I think psychological techniques are really important. Yes. Um, and then like the final question for now from me is, um, you mentioned earlier that there are lots of conditions that have very similar symptoms and uh, one of those is um, Charcot-Marie tooth disease so do you know kind of the differences between them and why like one is often misdiagnosed as the other? Um, So on a purely genetic level the difference is that um, the condition I have is a deletion mutation of the PMP22 gene whereas CMT there are many different forms of CMT that are all associated with slightly different mutations, but on the whole, it's a duplication mutation. Um, so it's kind of the exact opposite, uh, genetically speaking. Um, there are definitely similarities in terms of symptoms, um, such as things like palsies and um, it's a nerve problem. But from what I'm aware of, uh, CMT tends to have much more of a muscular or effect on the muscles compared to HMPP and there are lots of um, visual clues such as um, the formation of the legs and the feet which um, yeah they just act as a visual way of ch- checking if someone has CMT whereas in my experience HMPP does not have the same visual clues. I think people. the reason uh, HMPP gets misdiagnosed as CMT is because CMT has a much higher diagnosis rate, which means medical professionals are just more aware of it. I'm convinced that a large part of my diagnosis was purely coincidental. I just happened to go to someone who did actually know about it, whereas Basically, every other medical professional I've ever interacted with has never heard of it. Sorry, next part, um, we wanted to ask you more about your experience with doctors and institutions and how it's like living with the condition. So my first question would be, how was your experience seeking the diagnosis and was it with the NHS initially or did you have the need to like go 
to a private sector? So initially I went to A&E, like I said earlier, um, and they just kind of sent me home and they were like, we don't, we have no idea. So yeah, they sent me on my way. Um, and then I ended up going private and I went, I was referred to an orthopedic surgeon. I'm not really sure why. Um, he wanted, he was um, coming up with like all of these suggestions and he um, wanted me to have a surgery that's often used for people with carpal tunnel syndrome. And I didn't have that at the time, although I have since had that surgery. Um, he then sent me to um, a consultant urologist to do an EMG test. And this is the part that feels very uh, accidental about my diagnosis. So my mum came in the room with me for the EMG and he was just talking to me about my symptoms. And my mum also said, well, I've also had a lot of these symptoms when I was younger. Um, so he did my EMG and while he was there, he also very quickly tested my mum and found that the way our nerves were, were very, very similar. And he said, I think it might be this. And if he if we'd gone to anyone else, or if my mom hadn't been in the room, then I don't know if, if I would have ever got a diagnosis. So then we went to um, have genetics tests and then I got diagnosed and my mom also got diagnosed through me having the genetic test because it was obvious where I'd got it from, really. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, how How is your experience with doctors now? How would you say like your relationship is with, um, your relationship with your doctors are? I think it's a very weird one because when I'm in the room with a medical professional, I am aware that they almost certainly will not know of my condition unless they're a neurologist. Um, but even then, there's a chance they won't know about it. So I'm constantly aware that, so for able-bodied people and their doctor, their doctor is usually the expert. But I'm aware that that dynamic is completely different the minute I'm in the room with a medical professional because there are just so many variables about my body that they won't even be aware of. And then I end up, a lot of the time, my appointments end up becoming lessons where I essentially teach them about my condition um, and how to care for people with my condition. So it's just, it really completely changes that relationship. If, it's, if it basically becomes a lesson in teaching, does that mean that you don't get out of these appointments what you need and you're not being given the care from the doctors or do you then do they then understand enough to be able to help you what's the relationship after that i think um it's rarely the second one because i think there's just there is so little that is known about this condition really um i think it does become a barrier to the treatment i really have to advocate for myself a lot in medical settings and I think that's the case for anyone with any sort of disability we really have to learn either to advocate for ourselves or to have someone in the room who will advocate for us
So is it very much like the doctors, as soon as they like learn about the disability, are they like, this isn't, I don't want to touch this. I don't want to get involved with it just in case they don't know much about it. So they don't want to get things wrong or are they ignorant in that sense where they're like, oh, it's fine, whatever. I think they're more towards the second one. They're more, they don't understand the implications of my condition. Um, and so they do still try and help, but it's not always very helpful. Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I, wonder, I wanted to ask what, what is your experience with telling your telling the institution the university or like in high school how was it um how did they react or were they helpful were they ignore ignorant i think one thing about my condition that is helpful is that there is a test that is black and white you have this condition um and while there are many things known about the condition there are definitely a very clear set out small number of symptoms and that it's accepted that things like writing will be difficult so on the whole i found it's been quite easy to get what i need especially compared to my friends who have conditions where it's maybe a little bit less clear and a little bit more where the institution has more power to argue a bit with it they don't tend to argue with me on my medical evidence. Um, so on the whole, I found that it's been quite easy, particularly because I did manage to find one doctor in the country. There are probably more, but I managed to find one doctor in the country who is a specialist on inherited neuro uh, neurological diseases such as mine, and he wrote a very good, very clear letter. So was that helpful for um, GCSEs and A-levels so that you weren't disadvantaged in those exams? Yeah, yeah it was really helpful. Um, particularly my GCSEs, my condition was really badly managed up until that point. Um, and so without this letter, I probably wouldn't have been able to type my exams. And if I hadn't been able to type my exams, there was no way I was gonna be sitting them just wasn't gonna happen and like socially did you feel like you lost friends or gained friends or that they weren't very helpful or were your friends amazing throughout the whole throughout from the age of 11 onwards like I think um my I'm quite lucky in that my disability I don't think has really affected my friendships um there have been friendships that I've lost because say I was a swimmer then I left swimming because of my condition and I lost those friendships but um a lot of what I experienced through this condition um it's very difficult for people well it's very easy for people around me to not even notice it's happening so it's a very very invisible condition and so I think I've not actually experienced loss of friendship through this, whereas I know some people, their condition does lead to that. Yeah. I was wondering if you had the opportunity or were you, be, were you able to connect with someone that had the same condition with you? Apart from my mum, I have never 
spoken to anyone with this condition. I'm aware of, so there's people like the YouTuber Jessica Calgren Fozard. There's this person who did an article on the BBC. There's my mum. Those are the three kind of tangible people that I know of who have that condition. There are also people on online forums, but there are when when you just speak to someone over a forum, they're a lot less, they're a lot more abstract. And I've also I've kind of more lurked on the forums than actually saying anything. Yeah. So if it was um there, there isn't like a wide group of people that you've spoken to, did that mean that was it the doctors who told you like that you know the um dissociating dissociating thing you were talking about earlier is that something you learned on your own or someone gave you advice or was it a doctor has, has the doctors actually given you any advice throughout the years or has it just been figure it out um the dissociating trick uh I had to figure that one out on my own the help that I've had from doctors has been well, there's this medication that's usually used for other things, but sometimes has been used on people with your condition or similar conditions, and it might work. And then it's never ended up working. So it's always been, this could work. We don't really know. We don't know what we're doing. Try it anyway. And it's never worked. Yes. Go back to talking about the um, doctors and the medical institutions then. What do you think is needed to make those services more accessible um, for, for both um, HNPP, but just in general with hidden disabilities? What can doctors do to make it so that we can go to doctors with these issues and trust them to help us? I think um, because of the nature of my condition, for me, when I think about what needs to be changed in... Um, the kind of medical environment I always just go I wish people were interested in researching rare conditions this condition isn't rare uh, no this condition is rare even um it but it isn't life-threatening or life-shortening and because of those two things people just aren't interested in it however yeah it has a profound effect on people's quality of life. And so I think we need to reframe the way we think about what conditions are worth research and what conditions are, it's almost like there's a hierarchy of conditions within the disabled communities. And I think that hierarchy is put on us by medical professionals. And at the top of the list is rare and life-threatening and I'd say that rare and non-life-threatening is quite low down on the list yeah because there's not that many of us and it's not going to kill us so I think for me that is the the thing that I really wish would change. So do you think that's an aspect of um, researchers need to do more research so the doctors pay attention or do you think that's the doctors need to just go ahead and take initiative and if they see someone with a condition they don't know about educate themselves so that the next person doesn't have to go through the same trials that that 
we've gone through for example I think it is a combination of both of those things I also think it's challenging um what the medical community see as problems like I was saying it does feel sometimes like the medical community almost imposes a hierarchy of importance on the disabled community so maybe challenging that and accepting that actually for each person what we experience is not always a great thing we don't need people putting us in hierarchies which then make some of us suffer more than others yeah definitely that's quite important um so in terms of um in like university and school and even um living on your own in university what what can the institutions do to help with um assistance or do you not think uh, anything else needs to be done they're doing a great job already um i think that's a really difficult question because the answer is essentially we live in societies that are not um that just do not suit certain conditions and so for me to live in a society where i minimize my pain and minimize my fatigue society would just need to be completely reframed the model in which our exams work the model in which we're expected to work and ac both academically and in terms of paid work it is not suited for people who experience fatigue or chronic pain it's not suited for people who can't write that's one thing that i've really noticed the world expects everyone to be able to write and it is really difficult sometimes when you can't because so i went to um a job interview the other day and i had to um sign loads and loads of forms i didn't want to say well no i can't do this so i just had to sit there and do it and it was quite painful for me so just even the process of trying to get a job even though it's working in a kitchen requires me to be able to write so on that topic would you say that you don't necessarily want to disclose your disability to anyone who's interviewing you for a job because you is there like a what if they use that against me or is it just a, you don't want them to see you differently um i think part of it is i don't want them to see me differently i also think i go there's not really a whole lot that they can do because yeah. there are some disabilities which require um, adjustments and accommodations in the workplace. For me, there are there's very little that they can do, and I don't want anything to jeopardize the chances of me being able to get a job. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, in general, how do you think we can raise awareness? for HNPP, for anything else that's rare? Do you think that it's on the community itself to do? Or do you think that society and the general population should play a huge role in that as well? I think um, as, as a community of people with a condition that uh, can result in chronic fatigue, we're all too tired to do it ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah it needs to be a group effort and i would say um the 
to me, the important thing would be to raise awareness for rare invisible conditions, not necessarily specifically HMPP, because there are there are so many conditions out there. People can't know them all. Medical professionals can't know them all. And that is something that I completely accept and understand. So I think just letting people know that like we're out here um, and also if people say that they have a rare condition don't necessarily ask questions the answers might make you feel very awkward yes so in terms of um during covid obviously the sunflower lanyards were like a huge part of um the reasons why you don't have to wear masks and obviously yeah. The sunflower lanyards prior to that were for invisible disabilities and letting people know. Do you think those help and it means that you don't have to state why you need help or do you think it just raises more questions? I think it completely depends on the people you're around because some people just go okay yeah that's cool. Some people I think a lot of people associate the sunflower lanyards with um, being exempt from wearing a mask and a lot of people associate that with going oh I bet loads of the people who wear sunflower lanyards to avoid masks are just doing it because they don't want to wear a mask Um, so I think in that respect it's yeah it's all about the people around us the able-bodied people who place judgments on us that's where the difficulty comes with them yeah what would you like the university to do but like how would you want them to uh, raise awareness about your condition or like what kind of help would you want them from them exactly i think on a um personal level in terms of my interactions with the disability team at the university they've been really good i think the sussex disability team is excellent shout out to them they're they need to keep doing what they're doing because they are awesome um i think in terms of what the university can be doing um the university is not accessible and i think a really important thing is for them to look at the full spectrum of disabled people and make it accessible um talk to us ask us questions find out what we actually need because as wonderful and as lovely as podcasts like this are at the end of the day the people who need to be hearing this stuff and need to be listening to this stuff are the people in control of the institutions who can make stuff accessible for us yeah i totally agree with you so one final question if you had to give like one or two pieces of advice to someone who's newly diagnosed either with HNPP or just with like a hidden disability in general, what advice would you give them? Um, Find, even if you don't talk to these people, find as many people online with your condition as you can, because there at some point, something is gonna happen to your body and you're gonna go, I don't know what's caused this. And it might be really scary, but I guarantee you there will be other people with your condition who are reporting the same symptoms. I think with 
this is one thing that I've noticed about um, the lack of research into my condition particularly there are loads of us going we think this symptom is a symptom of this condition but on the surface it might not seem like it is so we're not able to get adequate help for the problems we have so yeah finding people with your condition is really important also just making connections with other disabled people regardless of their condition is really important so yeah my advice would be find those two groups of people they'll be your lifeline yeah so it's so important to know you're not alone i think is is what that helps with um well, thank you very much for joining us on Braincast Hidden Disabilities. It's been a pleasure talking to you and raising awareness for hereditary neuropathy with liability to pressure parties. Well, thank you very much for having me. I had a great time. <laughs>